Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And for the first time, we have a guest on today's episode of Three. It is Roger Federer's coach from 2010 to 2013, Paul Anacone. Look, first guest, we had to make it good. And to cover Federer's coaches, his coaching tree, who better than Paul? So here it is. We're joined on Three by Roger Federer's coach from 2010 to 2013, Paul Anacone on the show. Paul, thanks so much for for being on. Um, You are our first guest on three. This is not a show with guests. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. That's good. Good to know. I feel very privileged, really privileged. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Speaking of feeling privileged, I want to know first, uh, first off, how you learned that you were going to coach Roger Federer. You have a unique insight, and I think people are interested. How does this all work when when a player is out there selecting a coach? And I know there are different methods, but when did you learn you were Federer's coach, and what was that process like? Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I think his agent, who's a friend of mine, um, got in touch with me in the summer 2010 and asked me if I would have any interest in doing a trial period with Roger, and then you know, going from there to see if we both thought it was a good match. And I had known Roger for a long time from when I coached Tim Henman and also when I coached Pete Sampras when Roger was real young. So we knew each other and I knew Roger had, um, he was uh, coachless at the time. And, um, you know, I'd seen him a bunch of different times, but I didn't know that until Tony Godzik, his agent reached out. And then uh, we chatted a couple times on the phone and then uh, had a couple weeks in Zurich. And then from there, we uh, we kind of got it rolling. So I was pretty lucky. I was a, a very uh, amazing few years of my life. Um, and uh, luckily for me, I got to ride uh, in the passenger seat of some pretty special people. And Roger's one of them. So it, it's been fun. I, I was really fortunate. We had a great run. And uh, he's still a very dear friend. So it's, it's been good. It's great to hear. And you mentioned that Roger was coachless when at the time. Uh, when you came on. And I think Federer is unique from Nadal and Djokovic. And we we covered Tony Nadal. We covered Marion Baida, who has been a part of Djokovic's team for literally 18 years. Roger likes to mix it up. And, and sometimes he didn't mind not even having a coach. Why do you think his formula for success was different than the others in terms of having different people come in and sometimes having nobody in that specific head coaching role? Well, I think one of the most important things in an individual sport is knowing yourself and knowing your personality and your life and and knowing um, the strengths and weaknesses of that. And I think Roger knows himself really well. Um, he's historically a student of the game, understands the game really well. Um, and he had a bunch of terrific coaches growing up. So the foundation was there. His wife, Mirka, you know, is a former pro player, so she understands the game really well and more importantly, understands Roger really well. So I, I think Roger's really interesting in so far as he, he really enjoys different perspectives. He's an expansive thinker, and I think that's why he's had a bunch of different coaches. Um, 
and I think also his personality is so affable. That's why, you know, I don't know anybody that worked with him that is not his friend still. So, I mean, you know, ours was a great tenure. I really enjoyed it, but I think it's mostly personality driven. And um, I don't think there's any ill intent. I think he's a really interested person to hear different perspectives. More coaches, more friends. Uh, Here's a question from uh, my co-host, Joel Drucker. Uh, He's interested in a little bit of compare contrast with Federer and and Sampras, uh, who, as you mentioned, you also coached for um, a while. Practice sessions, uh, training sessions, the approach to to going out there and training. Were there any main big differences between how they like to train? I think, well, personality-wise, they're very different, Um, but they got to their same place in their goal orientation with very different methods. And what I mean by that is they they both understood each other. I'm sorry, both understood themselves really well. As I said about Roger, Pete knew exactly what he needed to do to be successful, much more insular and insulated. And Roger is a, an extrovert and he's out there in the world. Um, in terms of preparation, they're pretty similar. They worked hardest in the preseason. And luckily for them, because they win so much during the year, they're playing so many matches that a lot of their fitness um, and their training gets done because they win so much. And, and you know, when there is the few um, breaks in the calendar, they're both pretty diligent about getting ready for the clay court season, making sure they're prepared for the differences then for the grass court season. And I think the key is that, like I said, they, they know themselves really well. Um, Roger, I, I think was, um, I think Roger enjoyed probably uh, the process a little more than Pete did. Roger's kind of a goofy kid at heart. He loves, you know, he's always practical jokes and, but he works really hard. He's got a good team around him. And again, Pete was more insular. So he would be with his strength and conditioning guy, whoever it was at the time. And then I would do the tennis stuff and then he'd have his physio and then he'd have his life. So Pete was more mono-focused and Roger was more expansive, but I think that they worked very smart for themselves. It works for how they played. What about the approach to pre-match game planning? It seems that every player wants to know different things and go into different levels of depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and uh, well, those guys are different. Pete was, again, um, l- less information, a small, more compact period of time, didn't like to spend hours talking about stuff. Originally, when Roger and I were together, we did a lot of video stuff. We watched a lot of uh, different matches that he had played successes and failures in hotel rooms um, and then talked about that and discussed things. So he was more uh, into the process of hearing ideas, seeing ideas. Pete was really locked into, okay, this is how I play. He knew how he played, knew his game really well how do I plug that in tomorrow against X? And, and, you know, literally really brief conversations, usually the night before, and then just a quick reminder the day of when he's warming up for the match or in the locker room, just another couple minutes in the locker room and then just get it battened down a little bit. Now, if Pete was going through a time where maybe he wasn't serving well or is having a problem returning or whatever it may be, there might be more conversation about that just some key triggers to make sure he had the right thoughts but 
it was pretty streamlined. And like I said, Roger, it was really interesting because he did like to look at video for a while. He'd talk about historical things, what's been successful, where he's had challenges. So uh, very different. This is one from uh, my co-host, Amy Lundy. Federer was temperamental in his youth. That was kind of the reputation in the story that's told. You got a front row seat watching him carry himself both on and off the court and becoming known later on as literally one of the coolest customers in the history of the sport. How would you explain how Roger Federer is able to accomplish that, especially knowing that it didn't really come naturally to him? Well, I think, you know, again, I, I think his maturation process allowed it to happen. You know, I asked him about it when we were together years ago and, and, and I asked if it was something someone said or a coach or his parents or whatever. And he said it was a little bit of, of a bunch of things, but he said, ultimately, I just realized to myself that if I'm that emotional and those things can knock me off the rails, then I can't think my way through what's going on out there. And, and you know, he used to, he put in terms, he used to say, and, and I need to be able to find solutions. And I can't find solutions if I'm really emotional and things are, are going awry. So I had to figure out how to manage the emotions and get disappointed, but not let it ruin the rest of the match and be happy and not let it ruin the rest of the match. So I, I, I just basically made the decision myself after getting a bunch of uh, uh, feedback, both myself and also hearing it from his parents and hearing from other coaches. But really, he said it was himself that just hit the switch and said, I, I got to get better at this. Paul, we all appreciate the time. Thank you. No, I appreciate it, Gil. Thanks so much. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. He just hit the switch. That's what Federer did. I love that answer because ultimately Federer was the guy who single-handedly made the decision himself to change his own temperament, which is really, really difficult to do. I mean, I did a story once on a young athlete, a tennis player actually, who suffered from OCD and his thing was like tying his shoes over and over again and he got past it. And I asked him, how did you ever get past that? Cause they had tried medication and therapy and stuff. And he said, 
I just decided that tying my shoes again for the ninth time was not the best thing to do. It's like a switch went off. And, and that's almost the same words that Anacone used about Federer deciding single-handedly that he needed to shore up his emotional presence on the court. Yeah, it's very impressive. And obviously it's a major thing in Federer and explains a lot also about his coaches, people like uh, Paul Anacone, um, the other Tony Roach, Stefan Edberg, Lubacic, these are tranquil people. And so the mood Federer likes to create for himself is one of tranquility and not a lot of emotion. And you see that in Federer and how he processes things and how he talks and the way he manages himself through matches. I mean, I'm sure Paul will say that people like uh, Federer and Sampras are renowned for never pushing the panic button in the match or in a career. I mean, just uh, very interesting. I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, it was never about optics. And uh, Paul, when Paul asked Roger about this, Roger didn't say, well, you know, I just hated how it looked when I smashed a racket. Uh, it was actually, I'm sure optics could have been part of it, but it was also about winning tennis matches and searching for solutions and having a clear head that enables you to search for solutions. Because when Rafa has been asked about, you know, why don't you smash rackets? For him, it's more honor code. He doesn't say it's so I can win matches. He says it's, you know, this is how I was taught um, from a from a behavioral standpoint. So there's a there's a difference there that that I found interesting. Well, there have probably only been three players in the history of the game who could lose their temper and perform well with Pancho Gonzalez and Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. And each of them, I wonder, I mean, McEnroe has admitted that sometimes that got the best of him, which is a way of saying maybe it wasn't always so productive. Um, Gonzalez, I don't know as much about him. I know with Connors, I came to learn that he would do those things, but he was quite aware what he was up to. He was almost counting cards. So the whole role of temper, and I think that's true for all players, of how you maintain that kind of even, chill, cool. And, and Federer, of course, does it so well. But it is interesting how all these people arrive at it. And Novak, not quite different. Joel, your question was about Federer versus Sampras, how they go about game planning and how they go about training. What did you make of what Paul had to say? I just loved it. I mean, it just showed you again. First, um, I've worked with Paul at Tennis Channel. And you see the way Paul is so good at understanding the environment and building the empathy and understanding what a coach's job is to get in the head of the player. And I thought it was interesting how for all some of the, some of the apparent stylistic things, how Pete's, Pete being hunkered down and kind of has his eye on the prize and Roger kind of has his eye on the play. You know, it's so... When we come out, what comes out with Federer is how playful he is. I mean, Amy and I, a few years ago, watched that great video, that Periscope video he made before the Australian Open. And you just see he's a 12-year-old. You know, the older he gets, the younger he gets. And Paul talked about, like, like Rogers, sure, let's, uh, let's hit some drop shots for a few minutes. And, and the whole joy and process. And I think, I think this gets to Federer's um, pressure on himself from a young age. Federer wanted to be a pro tennis player, but that didn't mean he thought, like, Sampras was told when he was nine, you can be the next Rod Laver. That's a whole other kind of mantle of responsibility that he feels. So whereas Roger, yeah, wanted to be a great tennis player and what was going to be was going to be. From the Sampras and Federer approach to simplicity, you know, and, and Sampras being from game planning, I just focus on myself, right? I, I do what I do well. That's going to be the main thing. I don't care who I'm playing. 
and Federer getting a little bit more down and dirty with, with the analytics and what the right tactics are. I wonder what the effect of that is with, with maybe the difference in how they play, right? Because Sampras will go down as one of the greatest clutch players of all time. Uh, he always knew what to do under pressure. He always played great under pressure. Federer, I don't think, will go down as that guy, considering how many matches he's lost from up match point and some of the tighter, more epic matches that he came out on the wrong end of. Um, some of the best matches in his career were, were losing efforts, right? Um, now, on the other respect, Federer has this creativity and this genius and this joyfulness when it comes to how much people enjoy watching him play, that that tactical mindset was probably key for accomplishing. So that's how I kind of see the, the Sampras versus Federer thing, right? Because Sampras also at the same time, a lot of people criticized the entertainment value of Pete Sampras's game. Well, that had to do with the game was evolving, but I think Sampras was a wonderfully engaging player to watch. I think though he was more like a prosecutor in a lawsuit. It's like, here's my evidence. Here I come, deal with it. And this is what it's going to be. And the serve, the volley, the growing, raising a game on California hard courts, the different thing, Federer playing more on clay, um, reading signals more, aware of the opponent, uh, a, an excellent serve, but not, I mean, if I may draw on a baseball term, I think Sampras was like, big fastball, big curve, here it comes, that's what I got. Federer a little bit more, different pitches, different things. And, and again, I think growing up on clay is a big, is a big factor in in Federer's life that he played, he played a heck of a lot more on clay in his youth than Sampras did. I think um, that the game evolved when Federer was coming along and really starting to peak um, and it became more of a baseline game and he had to have more tactics. I mean, with that kind of, um, of a sport, you cannot just do your own thing you have to figure out what the other person is doing and try to dismantle that just by the nature of the way the sport evolved it became more tactical and Federer had the good sense to seize upon that well yeah you look in the Sampras Federer match the one match they played that was the last year of the old grass at Wimbledon and Federer served and volleyed constantly and I think I think the tactics if I may just bring a little bit there's a different kind of tactics in the Sampras era. You're right. In Federer's era, it became more baseline oriented. He's got a one-handed backhand. And so he needed to engage in more dissection. I mean, the, the Agassi legacy into Federer's era were these great baseline gays. And here's Roger with a one-handed backhand that he slices sometimes. And I think he enjoys, like Paul talked about the process, there's a, there's a dissection quality. I mean, I don't think people, when they play Nadal, they competed in the war zone when they play roger they've been kind of dissected it's like they're almost like a witness to this guy hitting wow that's a nice shot and that's a nice shot and i kind of missed there and i'm kind of you know he he's kind of a he's a his own kind of disruptor he's kind of a clever disruptor roger and that's his joy in in the game and mixing things up and drop shot approach shots and driving backhands yeah i think those are all great points um about about the differences between Federer and Sampras. My, uh, my main question to Paul was about Federer's approach to his coaching. The fact that he's always felt that it's important to get a lot of different voices involved. 
the fact that he's been comfortable with not having a coach at certain points in his career. And, and Paul's answer also tied into Roger's personality, which I found was interesting. You know, I think Nadal and Djokovic and, and Paul kept it to Federer, but I'll go there. I'll go here. Uh, very much. This is my circle. They bring people in tight and they might be more, you know, small circle, maybe, you know, introverted. This is the wolf pack kind of mentality where Roger's the kind of guy who sees a stranger on the street and asks what he had for breakfast. I mean, this is a very social, Paul used the word affable uh, character. And for that to be one of the reasons cited for why Roger is like, oh, let me bring this guy on my team. Let me bring this guy on my team. Let me bring this guy on my team. I, I found that very, very interesting that it's not just a tennis decision, but it's also partially uh, has, comes down to Roger's personality. Uh, as one of the reasons why he's brought so many pe different people into his team. I could agree with you more. I mean, I think that was really illuminated to me when he began working with Stefan Edberg, who was one of his heroes. And I think he just liked having him around. I mean, I'm sure they had many talks. I'm sure he learned from Edberg. But I think his, his comfort with him and his liking that energy of an Edberg and that, yeah, that affable quality. I think, yeah, there's such a, there's such a seamless quality to the way Federer does things that's different than the kind of like, gather with my team and then go into battle. It's kind of like, hang out with my team, play around, hit some balls. And okay, now I'm going to play a match. Now I'm going to talk some more. Now I'll do interviews in three languages. There's everything with Redders, this whole kind of like a play and flow. It's always kind of recess for him, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot like his footwork, isn't right. it? It's just sort of seamless. And then I'll, you know, do a thing and, you know, GQ, and then I'll, you know, go to the Met Ball, and then I'll do this and that. Um, I was just it really impressed when, when listening to Paul about, and, and as pertains to your question, Gil, about what good executive function skills that Roger has that he's able to take in all these people's viewpoints, these bits of information, synthesize them and organize them in a way in his mind to prepare himself really well for any match. And I mean, as a player, I find that kind of thing really challenging. I have to like drown out certain things or I don't want to hear that or I don't want to hear about my opponent because it confuses me. And Roger is just the ultimate in being able to organize that information. That's so funny. See, I like hearing about my opponent. That helps me get where I like to go. I like knowing those kind of things. They're like these, like, in fact, just, uh, just today I was somewhere and I've met someone who we're going to, I've never played. I just met him and we talked about playing and then I watched him hit and I was saying, I said, noted. I mean, I enjoy that. I enjoy, but I enjoy that input, but then there's other input I don't like. So yeah, it's interesting in how Federer, of course, these are world-class people who've climbs so many mountains climbs so high up the peak and he uh, yeah he just kind of takes that in and it, i think it goes back to how he what he learned when he was working with peter carter the australian who himself was kind of a, a eclectic player you read about peter carter this guy liked to hit a lot of shots and that maybe helped inspire Federer. it's so interesting about the a temperament in a game and Federer when he was young you could he just enjoyed trying lots of shots and doing different things and let's build those skills and let's try this <laughs> Let's try that. And, uh, and you see how then that got sharpened with some of the other coaches he's worked with. The one thing that maybe should be said about Federer's whole coaching tree and the fact that he, he changed a lot and had a lot of different voices in there is the one guy who has really stayed on 
for the long run is Pierre Pagnini. You know, so it's not that nobody um, nobody has been a part of Federer's team for the entire for the entirety of the of, of his career. Um, reading about Pagnini and Christopher Clary's book, with which Joel, I know that you're working on on a piece about. Um, the, Pagnini also fits into all of these themes. The fact that he keeps fitness, which is it can be really miserable. He keeps it fun, exciting, engaging, different. You know, when you're working with Federer, you have to avoid boring because uh, he he's not interested in boring. Um, he's interested in this whole thing being fun. And, and Pagnini accomplished that. And he's the one who has, uh, has always been around the Federer team. Well, and keeping him fresh. And also, let's not forget also Severin Luthi, who's been with him almost 15 years. And again, that's someone who's affable. And again, we don't know what gets talked about in these player coach things. I think the team sports kind of warp our minds around tennis a little bit because the team sports have this whole thing about, you know, this is after the day after the game, we do this. And then on the two days after we do this, you know, there's so much been written about the discipline of the coaches and the coaches, the boss. I don't think it works that way in tennis at all. I think it's different with every player and every situation and the player is the boss and the player knows a lot. I mean, I meet guys, I meet teachers who tell me, oh, I've got some insights into Federer's backhand if I could just talk to him. And I say, you don't understand, this is pro tennis. Guys, like tennis players learn to be self-reliant. I mean, they're the boss man of their coaching team. And that's a very different thing. So Federer, who he has around him, I noticed his coaches, he's had Australians, Swedes, um, a Spaniard. These are people, these are subdued people, tranquil people. You know, you don't see people yelling and screaming. It's not the American football coach. Not that the American football coach is always like that either, but still. Right. Also, you know, with Pierre in there, you, you never saw the images of Roger Federer um, like dragging tires like you saw that with Courier and Andy Murray you know it, it was um ah Roger's gonna go for a little five mile jog today or Roger's gonna work on some light reaction time stuff today um so I I huge fan of Paganini and and I just want to like read everything the guy ever wrote or listen to everything he said because I think he's really on to something um, regarding the sport of tennis. Well, this is going to get to the uh, dialogue you and I, Gil, have had about the whole suffering thing. This is the 180 from the suffer for your craft. This is the bring joy and playfulness. I mean, that, I mean, how closely do we watch that, that Periscope video about four or five years ago, Amy of Federer? Yeah, it was fun. Luca Pui and 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 throwing the ball around pagnini and and just uh enjoying tennis and it's something that's something connected to the variety of his game it just makes you think of how it reminds me of a friend i was playing with once and he was really hard on himself i said hey i didn't say let's work tennis this saturday afternoon let's play yeah whole playfulness fetter brings that lets him yeah let's try also things. he's never bored playing you know people really get bored watching him play Okay, we got to talk about Mirka Federer as well, okay. because I don't think that she um, is someone who's been in the background when it comes to Federer's team or any part of his life. Uh, she seems like a, a key figure in, in this whole equation. And by the way, 
when Federer and, and Mirka met, Roger was still the young Swiss player who was ultra talented, but had not really fulfilled his potential. So let's also keep that in mind that that uh, Roger had was not Federer um, until after he met Mirka Federer at those Athens Olympics. Well, no, it was the um, it was the Sydney Olympics. Oh, Sydney uh, Olympics, two thousand. Yes. So I, I think I think I'm gonna I'm, to defend Roger a little bit. He wasn't in the stage of has he fulfilled it. He was 19 when they met. So he was just beginning to play. It wasn't like a couple of years later, we were wondering, well, what's going to happen with Federer? I mean, he was he was two years out of the juniors when they met at the time. Well, I didn't say he was a bust. I just, you know, he was not. Well, Phil, well, Phil you know, it's a pretty, he was just kind of getting going in his career. Well, well, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, um, it, it wasn't like a Radicanu situation where he won a major and then we were waiting for what he would do next. It was more like once he started winning majors, he didn't stop. So it, he just, he leapt up in trajectory and then just went from there. But to get but, back um, to him, they met, yeah, they met in 2000. I mean, they met, I think they probably maybe known each other, but they connected at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Yeah, yeah, they had known each other. Right. She's she's no wallflower, right? She we hear her at matches. We've seen her. Um, and and how many times has Roger said, "I would not be here without her. I couldn't do it without her." Um, she's like the CEO of the family, and you know who who knows what else she does um, regarding his business and and that kind of thing, but. Um, that being said, she does not give a lot of interviews. So it, it's hard to know, you know, who she really is, other than this stalwart who um, has knows tennis very well and has been like his rock steady support. I yeah, think we do know this. Go ahead. Um, she was a player who never got above, I believe, 70 in the world, but she was a top 100 player for a couple of years. And by, by many accounts, um, including, again, Clary's book, which, uh, which I might lean on here a little bit, um, she was a workmanlike player, a highly professional and mature young woman. And it was kind of, that's not really how Federer was. He was not, he was a highly talented player who couldn't clean his room. Right. I mean, people who grew up with Federer at the Academy, messiest room they've ever seen in their lives. Mirka comes in and I think brings a, another level of professionalism. And you know what? Um, I'm working my butt off in a way. If you if you were like me, you would go a lot higher um, where Mirka had health issues and had to retire in 2002 because her foot injury was so bad. So I do think that there was kind of a a bit of a someone who is the max professional, the max, and someone who's still learning how to be professional. And Mirka might have brought Roger up to her level a little bit. That's not bad. I'm intrigued by that. And again, that's one of those things where I wish I wish we could learn more from her directly and of that of, a, of that kind of stuff. But I like that connection about her. And she's a little older. And and um, yeah, and Roger, Roger, when they met, he was 19. And get the idea, Roger was the young goofball. Now he's the old goofball. But he was kind of like, yeah, there's a goofy kid-like quality to Roger. And you could just imagine him remembering that when he was a junior with the hairdo and, and some of the things he was, yeah, he was kind of forming his, his real world identity. The tennis identity was happening too, 
that's a that's a very interesting point. I mean, that's a very interesting point in the evolution of God. That should be like a little. That's a little uh, part of the the the, the nineteen part Netflix show on the life of Roger. We'll have that one right when Roger met Mirka, at chapter three. I mean, that's <laughs> that's good. And she look obviously the support. I think the fact that she has played is very meaningful to him because then she understands some of it to a, a great degree and he pays attention. Very interesting. 100%. Um, another inflection point is, uh, first of all, the impact that Peter Carter had on Federer as a technician, as a young kid working on his one-handed backhand um, super vigorously, having a connection with Darren Cahill while Cahill was uh, coaching Leighton Hewitt. And they would have a little rivalry that, you know, Peter Carter, who is also Australian, like Cahill, would say, no, Roger's going to be better. Darren would say, no, Leighton's going to be better. Um, and, and he worked very hard on Roger's game as a junior. And then tragically, uh, Peter Carter got into a car accident in South Africa and passed away. And that was extremely impactful for Roger. And I think it gave him a new sense of purpose in life, a new source of inspiration. And it really became a rally cry. I need to do this for Peter. I need to fulfill the potential that Peter always told me I had. And that was to be world number one, which, which Peter was very emphatic about. And by the way, that's a theme. Novak heard that too, uh, that we talked about from people around his childhood. Well, Roger got that from Peter Carter. And I think that that's essential. Well, yeah, that's I mean, Peter died in 2002 and Roger won his first slam in 2003. So you could make that direct connection. And I mean, that's gotta be tragic for the guy who's been working with you since you were nine years old. It could, could have gone either way. So um, you have to think that you're right, Gil. It, does, it did have a, a, an extreme impact. Well, right, because those two years, for example, I've made the point about Federer 2000 at the Olympics, 19 years old still on his way, but 01, he beat Sampras at Wimbledon. You think, okay, come on, Roger. And then 02, Wimbledon, he loses in the first round. And Carter's death that summer was a thunderbolt to Federer. It's like, wait a second, I got to really maximize this. And I think I'm going to make my, uh, my constant thing on behalf of the Australians as kind of the caretakers of the game's greatest values of work and sportsmanship and class and all those kind of things that Carter, and it's, it is neat that whole Darren Kale to Hewitt angle and these, these guys meet as young juniors and, and here's Hewitt in a whole other part of the world. And uh, that's, that's a pretty neat connection. But I think, and again, I, I, always, I liked it when Federer worked with, with Tony Roach, the, Austra the great Australian coach and the whole, the whole Australian value set is very meaningful to Federer. And obviously Peter Carter, um, yeah, of course, he didn't choose to work with Peter Carter when yeah. he was pro. He worked with Peter Lundgren because Lundgren had been a higher ranked player. And I guess Federer felt he, he knew the ropes at that level more. So that was probably somewhat crushing for Carter at a time. But then I think he could accept it. I mean, he had, he brought him this far, but it's, it's, it's so interesting. These, these coaches, those are very important stages, right? Those formative years, then on into the pros. Is there anyone else, Joel, um, from, you mentioned Peter Roach to Stefan Edberg, um, to, to even Paul, we can talk about from a different perspective, which is uh, the coaching tenure instead of the interview. Um, do any of those guys stand out to you as 
as having particularly profound impacts on the trajectory of Roger's career? That, you know, that, no, other than Peter Carter, no. I think about, I think of them, they've just brought appropriate value as he's needed because he's aware of his Roger. It's not like the Brad Gilbert or Brad Gilbert did with Agassi. And I think, you know, Tony Roach, Anacone, it is interesting how a lot of these coaches um, on through to Edberg Lubitschek were kind of urging Roger to get to net more. And it's not until he's like 35 and he's got the bigger headed racket and now he's committed to driving the backhand and I'm going to beat this guy in a dial come heck or high water. And he plays that Australian open final that kind of the Rogers doing some of the things that other coaches had kind of urged him to do that. He was a little, you know, during those dominant years, he was beating me a lot of people from the baseline. Why do I need to come to net as much? And I think, I don't know what all the data is, but he's been a lot more aggressive in these last few years. Yeah, I mean, I would say that of all those guys, our, our distinguished guests notwithstanding, what Lubacic did to bring him, help bring him back when, you know, people said he should retire and, you know, he's done um, to win the Australian Open and to beat Nadal the way he did. Um, I don't know what Lubacic did. I don't know what role he played, but that is pretty impressive right there. Right. and But again, I don't, I think it was, like it's Roger, it's Roger with, it's Roger with, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a different. And so I don't know. And we will never, and we probably never will know because the way these coaches, it's, uh, it's a little unfortunate. It makes me think that, okay, if we're going to legalize coaching, let's open it all up. Let's really learn what goes on here. Like we do in some other sports and dig into it. But, uh, uh, and I think that 17 Australian open is that and the 09 French are probably the slams Federer would cherish most. I mean, that 17 Australian was a real sweet, sweet return. Yeah, I don't think there's any arguing that. I agree. Um, all right. So if you have not watched the previous shows, we have now completed our trifecta of the big three coaching trees. We've done Rafa Nadal, which is obviously hyper-focused on Tony Nadal and a little bit of Carlos Moya because that's how the career has gone so far. Uh, Novak Djokovic from Yelena Gencic to Marion Vida and others and now Roger Federer with our special interview with Paul Anico and getting into uh, Peter Carter, Mirka Federer, uh, Pagnini and all of that. So if you haven't watched those, I will link it in the, in the description um, and you can also check those out in the archives if you want to search yourselves. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.